Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Hello and welcome to the first podcast of 2022 with me, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Llewellyn Usher, the new head of the Centre for Army Leadership. Today's guest is one of UK sports' most accomplished female athletes of all time. First selected for the national team at the age of 19, she went on to represent her country 375 times and was for 13 years the captain of the British team. She competed at numerous international hockey tournaments, including four Commonwealth and four Olympic Games, amassing 19 world-class medals, most memorable of which was a gold medal at the Rio Olympics in 2016. It is the greatest pleasure and a huge privilege to welcome the former England and Great Britain hockey captain, Kate Richardson-Walsh, to the podcast today. Kate, welcome and thank you so much for giving that time to talk to us. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really looking forward to having a good chat with you. Thank you. I think you, know, you spoke last year at our leadership conference and gave one of the most compelling speeches about your life as an international hockey player, which I think many of us in the room and certainly out on the, the wider network were, were genuinely touched by. I think noting there's so much we'd like to discuss today, and naturally I really like to explore your experiences as, a, as an Olympic gold medal winner, but specifically as the captain uh, of that team, but also your development as a leader um, and, and also the current work you're, you're now doing both coaching but also with a number of different activities and areas of interest so I think it would be fascinating to see how you've taken what you learned through sport and are able to apply it elsewhere but before we perhaps go into that it might be worth understanding you know who the Kate that we see and know now and who was the leader of that fantastic victorious team who she was and how she got to where she ultimately achieved such great success on a global stage. So perhaps you could talk to us a little bit about your formative years growing up and perhaps maybe who shaped you as a leader and and indeed what actually got you into hockey in the first place. Yeah, it's, um, I have to cast my mind back, I'm getting old now. Um, (laughs) So yeah, I grew up in in Stockport in South South Manchester. I was born in in Midlinton in Manchester and I had a, a younger sister Rachel, my parents are both originally PE teachers, so really sporty household. You know, we had all tennis rackets, cricket bats, hockey sticks, you know, everything. And we we lived opposite a cul-de-sac, so we would have mini Olympics around a block of flats um, opposite us with the rest of the kids uh, that kind of lived nearby. And so it was definitely an um, active, sporty kind of childhood. And that, I suppose, was a bit of my safe space. Um, I, d- I hated primary school. Um, I was quite poorly as a, a young girl and, and missed a lot of school and therefore didn't really connect and make really deep friendships with anybody um, and therefore was quite shy and introverted and, and was bullied a bit at primary school like lots of people are and I just I just didn't find myself or find my voice I wanted to be anything but me um, I wanted so badly to fit in and to be with I can't run with the in crowd and that just wasn't me it just wasn't wasn't me it wasn't happening for me um but sport particularly gymnastics and swimming that I did when I was kind of primary school age um was my escape and then I only found hockey my mum played hockey so I'd watched her play but I only started playing myself when I went to secondary school from my local comp and it was one of the um one of the things we did in PE um, netball hockey athletics and rounders and I had a PE teacher Mrs Kinder who um, I'm still in touch with and and she just had this wonderful way, like so many teachers do, of passing on her passion um, for sport, but mainly hockey. And, and that led to, you know, myself, my sister and, and another uh, lady called Tina Cullen, who she taught previously at another school, all to play international hockey, but 
But more than that, it was encouraging young girls to just play hockey at whatever level they want to play. And and I think, you know, she was definitely one of those one of those women I, I looked up to and, and still look up to as that ability to communicate and um, connect with people and pass over passions for things. Um, and certainly my parents as well at the same time, both different, really different characters, different people, but certainly helped me understand myself and um, allow me that freedom to explore myself and what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be. And, and I feel very, very grateful for, for those formative years. With that in mind, did you, I mean, we're sort of thinking ahead, but did you, did you recognise that you, whilst you were really good at a sport or lots of different sports, did you or did anyone above you, your, your, your PE teacher, did she recognise that you, you were a potential leader in the making or do you think that's something that came later on? Well, yeah, I mean, I should ask her this question, actually, because it is a good question and I, and I haven't often thought back to that. Even though I was incredibly shy off the hockey pitch, from a quite an early, in the early beginnings of my kind of, you know, my formative hockey career, I, I was confident at communicating to people, my teammates on the field. And I was a student of the game, even at that age, you know, 12, 13, I, I loved the tactics of the game and I loved moving people around and um, trying to stop what the opposition were doing. And, and so I could communicate that. And I think that was one of the reasons why, um, I was made captain quite early at that stage. Um, when you were, kind of, when you were, yeah. when you were young, playing as a child. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was yeah when I was kind of third, twelve, thirteen, and and she sent me to to trials. She sent me to county trials and North of England trials, and I wouldn't have been captain in those early years at a county in the North of England and England juniors because there were players who were older than me, more experienced than me, frankly better than me, and I was. I was finding my feet. I'd say in those early years, I was just, I was just about making teams. I was just about making the county team. I was just about making the North of England team. And I was absolutely just about making the England 16 team of my first attempt. So I wasn't one of the players who would you stand out and say, God, she is definitely going to be one for the future. I was just a, to somebody who was, who was playing and just about making it. I think your, your, your modesty is already shining through you know, at, at 14 for the under 16 Great Britain team, which, you know, in itself is amazing to be, you know, especially when, we're the, when one is that young to be playing a, a year or two ahead of oneself, which, which is an incredible achievement. But the following year, you didn't get selected, which, mm. you know, must have been devastating at such a young age. W would you mind perhaps telling us or sharing with us what you learned from that experience that's perhaps been one of the building blocks as you've gone forward in your career? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for that disappointment at that early stage um, of my life, never mind, you know, my hockey career. Um, and it was, it was devastating. It, it, I, it was the shame and the embarrassment and the failure and having let people down and let myself down. And there's some really big emotions to deal with when you're, you know, 15 years old. And my parents were brilliant in that they, they were really supportive of me at that stage, but they wanted me to look into myself because what well, any of us at any age you know it's very easy to say well the coach hates me and he you know he's he's got favorites and or I'm better than that player and I don't know why she's in and it's really easy to, to throw all that projector outwards 
And actually my mum said, what do you want to do about it? And it was just the most important question because it forced me to look inside and say, okay, what do I want to do about it? And I, you know, I look back now, I think it's torture, but you know, they helped me, they sent me off coaching with the coach who, who dropped me. So I went and helped him and kind of was an assistant coach for him at a, at a development coaching day. And it was, it helped me see that he did see something in me and he did have confidence in me and he did want to treat me as a human being. And so, you know, I couldn't see him as that bad negative figure that I wanted to. I'd say, oh, yeah, actually he you knows a nice guy and he really cares about hockey and he knows what he's talking about and, and see him in that light. And, and also I went to watch the tournament I wasn't selected for again, torture, but enabled me to say, yeah, do you know that team is brilliant? There's some phenomenal players out there, and I respect all of them. And you know, do I think I can roll with them? Well, I'm going to need to improve if I want to run with them and be with them. So there was lots of kind of little steps along the way, and then then really it was about the ch- decisions and choices that I was making, the college that I want that I wanted to go to, the club that I was playing for, you know, how I was looking after my body, nutrition, training, mindset, everything. At that point. And it wasn't overnight, it was certainly a kind of period of a, of certainly a year or two of really developing myself. And I couldn't have done that without the support of my, my parents, first and foremostly, but also the kind of some real key female coaches um, that I had at North of England and, and County who really helped just support me, but made sure that it was, it was all about what I wanted and what I was going to do about it. So I think you've hit a really interesting point which is definitely worth exploring both as a as an individual and as a as a team player whether one is in a in a sporting domain or for those of us in the military is if your ambition is to be selected for something or you're trying to achieve a goal and you don't perhaps meet it it's the anxiety of trying to work out either how you didn't achieve it or therefore what you do to put in place to try and achieve and I think there's definitely a question later on in terms of how does one lead those people who's, who are either not meeting their own expectations or their goals? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that is one of the, the hardest things I think I've had to come to terms with in terms of, as you said, leading other people who are experiencing that and going through that and having those honest conversations with people and first of all, mostly building a relationship with people that you're leading to the point where you can have that conversation in a really open and honest way. And it, and it's, you know, in some ways it feels far easier to deal with it yourself than to help other people kind of go through that because sometimes you can see things in other people that they can't then see in themselves or you're seeing it from a different perspective. And I think that can be really challenging as a leader. Really, really difficult sometimes balancing, especially when you become more senior in a in the squad or for, for those in the military how do you balance your own your own ambition and your own desires and in perhaps even your own disappointments with actually the greater good of the team and trying to bring on those that you're serving and you're leading um to ensure that they either maximize their own talent or achieve their potential but also give them the opportunities and i think when things were good for me as a, as a, as a captain, as a senior player, when I was kind of playing well and I was, I was a reasonably consistent performing player. So I could, you know, I wasn't excellent every day, but I was, I was good. 
every day I was consistently good and so kind of you can at the elite level if you're able to consistently be good and then sometimes raise that up then I think that's that's a good place that's a good um a good place to be because consistency is hard but I think I was able to be there and I think actually my caring for and trying to support other people's learning and development actually helped me take some of the focus off myself so I didn't become completely obsessed with that internal voice you know that's not good enough you need to do that better you're never going to be excellent at that you know which we can all get into that negative kind of talk and that negative spiral particularly when you're in those leadership positions and you sometimes feel like everybody's looking at you and you're a little bit you feel like you're a little bit um on a pedestal and everyone's kind of able to take part shots it's, it's easy to get into that negative mindset and actually I think what it enabled me to do in, in caring for and looking around for and supporting others, it enabled me to just take some of that heat off myself. And that in turn gave me energy and, and I was able to put that back into my system and, and you know, kind of all those, which, and everybody can do that, right? Whether you're a, a, it's an assigned leader or not, you can all help and support the people around you. you can, regardless of what, what position you're in or what your hierarchy is, you can we can all learn and grow from each other. And I think you get a lot from that yourself when you're helping somebody else. And I think that's what helped me as a a captain. That's really, really interesting. The, so with, with your sort of, uh, sort of early development, developing uh, leadership um, skills at that young age, uh, I would say fast forward, but it it was only three years later or four years later that you were then in the actual national, the national team. And then only a few years after that, uh you you by then you're a seasoned player um of you know what four years in the four or five <laughs> years in the team you 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 were elected captain by your peers which mm. is the most extraordinary and most amazing and um you know i would i would think i don't know fulfilling experience to find that you've been elected by your peers to be the captain of the national team yeah it was it was a phenomenal and i was voted in every time and i think at every point you know at the beginning all the way out through to the end to know that the the players that you are leading want you to lead them, I think is hugely powerful. And I think latterly, there was an even greater kind of remit in that we'd having established our culture, our vision, our vision, about our, our behaviours, they were voting me as captain to lead specifically on that. And I think that really felt even more powerful. I suppose looking back, you know, when I first got into the team in 99, through to 2003 when I was first made captain, we had lots of different people kind of in and out of that leadership position. There wasn't really uh, anybody who was kind of head and shoulders above who really demanded and, you know, it seemed obvious that they should be captain and leading the side. And um, and I suppose that's potentially why I then held it for the length of time that I did, I think, because there was nobody really putting their hand up to say, yeah, you know, I want to, I want to lead the team. I think it, and possibly because we were in a really uncertain time uh, as a team in terms of our structure and our funding and uh, our training environment, the coaches that we had, there was a lot of, of change. I think in that environment, people can become quite insular and it's hard to put yourself out there um, in, in, that, in that environment. So I, I think it was timing was, was good for me um, and it enabled me to, to kind of take that opportunity when it came. Do you think, looking back, being made the captain at, at a very young age, you know, even though you'd been in the team for, what, four years? Yeah. What was it like? Was there a problem? 
or was there a perceived problem that you maybe thought about, about how you lead more experienced players? You're no longer just a teammate. You're now their leader, their captain. You're responsible for, in effect, the development of the team, but also what goes on the pitch and the results that you are achieving as a team. Was there anything that you... You know, is the old adage that you know, if you're good enough, it doesn't matter how old you are, if you're good enough, you're old enough? Or was there something you had to address with certain different dynamics of players in terms of those that were very junior, those that were very senior? Honestly, when I, when I look back, I, you know, I kind of, I can kind of rise smile and just that, you know, you know, how much did I have to learn? It, I was very focused on my leadership, my communication, the standards that I was holding myself to and against and what I was kind of asking of, of other players around me I was very much focused about being on the pitch whether that was training or in terms of matches or tournaments I was very but vocal very confident able to use my voice and to, to bring people together I was less thoughtful of mindful of I wasn't aware of actually most of the job of being a great leader and of being a captain is the relationships that you build outside of, of that outside of training time and game time it's actually exactly as you said it is about thinking about okay these players are senior to me what's their mindset you know where are they at mentally physically emotionally how can I best support them and the younger players you know are they playing with that lovely less lack of fear are they able to really express themselves are they you know making sure they don't have that sense of responsibility necessarily on their shoulders they understand what it is it is to be part of this team you know I didn't really have any concept or any idea of that being part of my job as a captain at that point I was just very much focused about being on the pitch and and that you know that's a, a, to a detriment that was a detriment to my to my leadership I, I I missed a lot um and I look back and I think oh there's so many conversations that I would have wanted to to have had uh, knowing what I know now but I was just doing the best I could with what I knew at the time and um and really that was about setting the standards for myself and and then really demanding that of the players around me as well. Did your leadership of the team was it purely on the pitch and in on at the training ground or did it transcend into you know life and you know the the the, the inevitable frictions and pressures that we all have that come into play when we're either at work or, you know, in your case at that time, you know, in a, in a national team. It, it definitely evolved over time. And it was absolutely my part of my responsibility, um, mainly because I just cared about everybody. I, I genuinely deeply cared about the fact that they were getting the opportunity to be the best version of themselves. Now, whether that meant they made the team or not, I had no control over that, and nor did they to, to, to a greater extent. But what all I felt I could do was help them feel like they, they had the opportunity. And of course that meant things in training on the pitch, but more often than not, it meant helping them deal with, manage, thrive through all the other challenges that we're experiencing You know, in, in life, the ups and downs, the you know moments of friction between teammates between a group of teammates things outside of the the hockey world and I just as I developed I I suppose I learned through failure you know my sister played in the senior team and you know we had a really difficult relationship while she was playing in the team because you know I couldn't 
I couldn't find that sweet spot of being her sister, being her captain, being her teammate and helping her be achieve what she could achieve. Um, and, it, you know, that was when my sister, that's an easy example, but that would have happened with lots of players in, in my early captaincy. Um, and it was only through kind of learning th- through experience, lots of different experiences and seeing, you know, where I'd failed, frankly. Um, I'd failed them and, and therefore I'd failed myself as a leader and, and tried to bring that forward into helping the, the other players that I was playing with in, the, in that at that time. You're being incredibly honest and candid. I think, you know, that, that was absolutely your, your empathy with your teammates was something that shone through for all of us who listened to you speak so eloquently uh, in December at the conference we held, which was, which was predominantly about culture and leadership. With that in mind, there's obviously going to be people who didn't, didn't hear what you said, um, but you, you spoke about the importance of, and it's coming out now in loud and clear, you know, you spoke about the, the importance of transparency and honesty and sharing your emotions within a high performance culture. Mm. And you know, it, as, the, as a player, but also as the captain, do you think you perhaps have to be uh, either slightly reserved or should you be completely open to what's, mm. what you're feeling and fearing so that you either have great empathy with your players or they have someone who they can know they can rely on because perhaps you're not being perceived as as vulnerable as they are? It's a really good question. And, you know, I would, in the beginning of my, of my captaincy, I, I didn't show, I, I tried to show nothing. I, you know, I, I genuinely thought the leaders had to put a mask on and shut it all down and put on a brave face and only let them see that brave face because that's what they're going to take on board. And, and they, and they need that. And they need to see that you're okay so that they, they can be okay. I really thought that's what leadership was about because that's how I'd been led. It wasn't until, and I'm a really emotional person. So that's hard work. Kind of locking all of that down was costing me so much energy, which I had no idea. Um, and it was only when I started to open up and players because we're so used to be kind of giving each other feedback. Players were receptive to me opening up quite in, in small ways to begin with. Um, and I found that I was able to have some really deep, meaningful conversations with, with players off the back of me opening up a little bit. They were then prepared to open up with me. And then we, we, we were fostering some really strong relationships. And I think in a team environment, that's when players are prepared to do over and above they're prepared to do that extra mile they're prepared to go that extra little bit that others perhaps wouldn't because they they know that you care for them that you've sat with them and you've opened yourself up with them and and you've allowed them space to open up with you and I think there's that's where the power is however I would also say that there are there were times when I didn't let them see it all and and I also think that's important. I, I think it's it's it was important for me to keep some either parts of myself or certain things that were maybe going on kind of above us to not keep it from them, but to give them as much as they needed to know, um, to enable them to to understand what was going on, to um, to create their own thoughts, to have their own feelings. And to make decisions off the off the back of that, but I think there's definitely there's definitely those choices and decisions that leaders have to make that are really hard. But I think it's about taking people with you on that journey. So 
you know, in this instance, I'm going to give all of this decision making to you. I'm going to kind of sit, I'm going to be with it. I'm going to be with you as a leader, but I'm going to allow you to make all the decisions here and have the conversation. In this instance, actually, there is no conversation. I'm making the choice. And it's just about being really clear and about what you're sharing, when you're sharing. And again, it's that open and open, honest and transparency. And I think people will understand then if you say, okay, there's things here that I can't share with you and there are good reasons for that. I think they're more likely to get on board with that if you've been open and transparent in every other aspect. And, you know, they, they won't be trying to see through that. They won't be trying to think you're hiding something from us. Um, that's really important that we need to know and I think that's I think that's that's kind of where I got to it with that vulnerability piece it's really interesting you know we we sometimes wrestle with that about whether one should be the the figurehead all the time or whether mm. you should perhaps allow your teammates your your subordinates in in you know in military terms mm. in to understand you know you, who you the human are um and you know sometimes it's really important to understand your your fears and your what makes you what what makes you tick on that day or what the things are that perhaps are bothering you so that they have a an understanding of when you say perhaps this is now what we really need to do they they, they buy into it yeah and it makes you human as well yes and that's sometimes something we all overlook <laughs> yeah yeah because, because that's because we've got you know in every aspect of life we've put leaders up there on this pedestal Kind of high above everywhere, everybody else. Where they, you know they, you can't make a mistake. You have to be perfect, and nobody's perfect. And we all have failings, and we falter, and we we have parts of ourselves that we're you know we're not perhaps proud of. But I think it's the ability to first of all be open with yourself about that, and then the ability to be open with the people about that. I think is what sets really exceptional leaders apart. Yeah, I think that's so. Your your that but that some of that is your personality and some of that is what you Kate learn as a as a leader in those early years but also as you as you evolve what one thing you, you so interesting you said so after you didn't qualify for the Athens Olympics mm. which you know for for anybody must have been it, it not qualifying for what is your ultimate goal is 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 devastating but you say you said in your book that you you learned a great deal from the failed qualification attempt as a hockey player, a captain, and a woman. Perhaps you can break those three things down a little, or, or maybe they're synonymous with each other. But as a as a person, as a leader, and as a player, how does that? How, what what did you learn from that that allowed you to go on to twenty twelve and twenty sixteen? I think the, the biggest thing I learned almost immediately was to speak up. Uh, there was lots of things going on structurally kind of uh, above above my way above my head um that at that point I thought well I don't I don't have any responsibility or have any voice in that arena and and I and I did and I should have so I needed to to speak up and I needed to also have some hard conversations. And some of those hard conversations, again, were with the coach or um, the management team. So, you know, having those hard conversations up, challenging up, I, I knew from that point on, I could never sit and be silent about things that I knew were wrong or that I felt were wrong. Um, I needed to personally speak up. I also needed to empower my teammates also to and give them the opportunity to if they felt like something 
was, you know, lines had been crossed or, you know, cultural kind of codes or ethics had been broken, that there was an ability for people to speak up about that. And I think those were the two of the major things that I I learned. And as and, and that's as a hockey player, as a captain and as a woman, I I need to and and I knew it was gonna be a hard and it's still hard work for me, but to to embrace hard conversations, to embrace friction, to embrace challenge. Um, I think there was was some of the most powerful things that came out of that experience for me, and having that sense of you know failure. We're all going to fail in life, and you can deal with that failure much more easily if you wholeheartedly know you, you could have done no more. Um, and I think that's probably one of the things that really stung at that time was that I I immediately felt like there were many things that I. I could have, we could have collectively done. Um, and I, and I, and, you know, I suppose at, at certain points later in my career, you know, people said, God, okay, you're obsessed. Like, you know, put it down. Like, is this becoming unhealthy? But it was because I felt I, I really wanted to right those wrongs. I wanted to make sure we left no stone unturned. I wanted to make sure that everybody had the opportunity to speak up, that I needed to speak up, that, that I was embracing hard conversations and, and challenging up. Up the hierarchy and, and and I think that's uh, that's I use that to, to really drive me forwards that's really interesting so your your sort of nadir as a team was 2004 you talked uh, before Christmas and you you speak you and Helen speak about it in your book about how you you went away and collectively analyzed what it was that you had done and were doing to try and get to where you wanted to go which is you know we we, we in the military we do as an the estimate you know that is it's it's akin to all walks of life as to understanding what the factors are that are going to play against you or are going to help you achieve your aim but you that you talked about um you know that experience and you know there's another sports team that did exactly the same thing in almost the same you know, time frame which was the all blacks mm-hmm. from crushing disappointment to themselves, but also the nation who expects so much of them. They then looked at how, how at themselves, they looked at what they were doing, they looked at their culture uh, and what that meant to them. And then they went on obviously to, to great success in both 2011 and 2015. How did you tie in your representatives of four nations of various different experiences, some very young to the team, some have been in the team a long time. How did you tie that together and you as the, captain could hear those individuals from a diverse set of backgrounds but who all had the same aim that's definitely something that came out 2004 so the the players led by by myself as one of the leaders of the captain at the time was to take to the board um the concept of we cannot bring as you said these nations together a few months away from the Olympic Games and think that we can be truly a team and not just a group of individuals who yeah of course we want to win but it, it has to be more than that we have to be driving in the same direction we have to be aligned to something and we we just haven't been up to that point it was absolutely just kind of you know let's all just throw all these players together the best from from England, Scotland and Wales we'll just throw them all together and hopefully they'll go and perform and, and it's madness to think that we were going to be able to compete with the rest of the countries in the world and it was about um, establishing a four-year GB programme and it was also about separating the kind of home nations from that, in some senses, from that Great Britain identity, but also 
allowing people to bring with them that identity and enable and, and can that be the foundational piece for that for that great brand identity so you know just very small things like you know the, the kit that we're wearing you know if, if if i'm training with great britain and i'm wearing an england top what does it say to the scottish and the welsh players you know what if if the only account that we're tweeting from and when, when that eventually came in was the england account even though we tweeted about great britain you know what does that say to you as a scottish and welsh athlete and they were they, and they still are, they are in the minority. And we need to look at things from the minority perspective. We need to um, lift them up. We needed to be able to really fully hear from them and enable all of those athletes from Scotland and Wales to feel like they have the best opportunity to play for Great Britain, to represent Great Britain. And for me, Great Britain was the pinnacle. I love playing for England and I love playing um, in, in the Commonwealth Games and, and European Championships as, as England. But for me, playing any time in any tournament as Great Britain was the was the ultimate. And I and myself, and I think there's a core group of players that kind of went from that 2004 to 2016, kind of pulled that as a golden thread all the way through. And we need to acknowledge and um, be proud of our, our, our home nation identity, but really align to a British identity. And I think that was a really important, powerful thing. So you, perhaps you could tell us what your, how you got, you know, how did you get that sort of bond together and how did you adapt, you know, four different groups of people, uh, four different effectively teams, never mind the club teams that sit underneath that. Yeah. What, what was the kind of the, the, the gel that, that really bound you together? You talked about a little bit in your book about winning be winners how did that evolve and how long did that take to actually take effect I mean I think the first time we'd ever had a conversation as Great Britain about vision values and behaviors from the get-go was um was just before was before the London Olympic Games and so for the first time we had players from different nations talking about but what are we aligning ourselves to here and in those conversations you know for sure the Scottish and the Welsh players and the English players were talking about their experiences in those home nations teams and bringing that into that room to help us to formulate what that vision was going to be for London which ended up being gold and the kind of the values that underpin that and the behaviours again that, that underpin those values everything that people brought with them was from their experiences from being I mean, 14, 15, all the way through to where, where age, whatever age they were then in the senior team, playing for their home nations and then wanting to now develop something of our own for Great Britain. And I think it just immediately aligned us to something. And that's then supported by the kit that you wear, the badge that you have on your kit, um, the language that's used, um, you know, who is leading you. And constantly, and I was, I was so on this and I know it annoyed people in the kind of administration and the uh, kind of uh, national governing body because England hockey were the kind of admin and they still are the admin base and the centre for Great Britain. England are the nominated country that that will um, enable Great Britain to qualify for for certain tournaments. And so, you know, there is that sense of where power is held and what that feels like if you are a Scottish athlete or a Welsh athlete. You feel, you feel a little bit on the outside of that. 
And I was always really conscious of that and conscious that we need to be mindful of our language, mindful of, of, of how we were behaving, constantly opening up and bringing people in. And, and I said, we're not there yet. We're still not there yet. It's still very England centric. And we continue to cut ourselves off to lots of opportunity to be, to be different, to be better, to be more innovative. And, uh, and, and that's what I hope we can, we can get there in the future. Well, I think, I think you certainly prove that you, you can do it certainly once, if not again, hopefully, fingers crossed. But with, with, with inclusivity as a, as a key point there about how you bring people in, as a group of players that you've now come together as Great Britain, you, you have talked previously and uh, elsewhere about the relationship with Danny Kerry, who very clearly a fantastic coach. But as the captain... How did you manage the inevitable disagreements that come with the, the captain-coach relationship where you're representing the players, but also understanding what the coach is trying to achieve? So I think the question is probably, you know, perhaps who is the leader and how did you manage leading and following? I mean, he, he was the leader. He was the leader of our programme. He was the head coach, without a doubt, I knew that and I and I know that he knew I, I I felt that way. And I think that's really important. And he he talked really openly right at the start of his uh his head coaching role with us um about his greatest fear was actually players undermining him, you know, which is which is a pretty bold thing to put out there right at the beginning of your of your leadership tenure. But it it really got gave, gave me an insight into uh his his mindset and it and helped me with particularly with those early interactions I think with him to kind of ease those fears that I, I don't want to undermine anybody that I you know I want the best for this team and although sometimes we're going to have conflict I always want you to know that in that sense we are aligned we both want the best for this team and as long as we both want the best for the team and the decisions are made some we're not going to like, but they are made with the team in mind and putting the team first, then I can get behind them and I can help the team get behind them. And, and, I'm, and therefore, in that sense, I am following. And that's, you know, that's, that's good followership from me is, is taking the messages that I know that I may not like, that the team are not going to like, but I can communicate them and, and pull people with me to follow him and you know he had great vision and he developed his vulnerability and he was more able to be more vulnerable as he as he kind of went through his um through his career and I think we did have brilliant conflict and I can say now it's brilliant conflict you know at the time it was probably for both of us really hard and it did cost us a lot of energy both for both of us but the conflict that we had but more often than not resulted in the best decisions being made and sometimes that meant well, probably more often than that meant I had to concede, you know, my point or I had to kind of backtrack a little bit or we couldn't necessarily meet in the middle all the time. But it was definitely about that kind of the, the to and fro and the, and the ability to, um, to be honest and to have some really frank conversations. And, and that's, you know, why ultimately I hope we'll always have that utmost respect for one another because we were able to see our vision was aligned and our sometimes, you know, our methods... I'm sure we both feel like we're questionable at time, but we we always got to the to the best uh, the best decision that we could more often than not through working through some of that. Did you ever feel lonely as the leader of the team? 
Yes. And some of that was my own doing. And I needlessly so. There was definitely a point, probably midway through my captaincy, and for quite a large section, that middle section, when I really thought I had to, I had to do it all, that it needed to be all on my shoulders, that it was absolutely about me. And that's wrong. Um, I was, I had a, a leadership group for, for quite a bit of that period and they were all phenomenal leaders and had all been voted in because of that. And all of them would have been phenomenal captains. In fact, two of them for brief periods when either I was injured or um, when I retired were, were captains and were leaders of that team. And, um, and I, I needed to, to, lean on them a little bit more I needed to empower them a little bit more I needed to give them space to be the leaders that they are and were and so yeah you know I do look back I don't like regret but I do look back and think god yeah at times I isolated myself and really did I just didn't need it unnecessary because I was really comfortable with making hard decisions and being making the unpopular choice and um because I genuinely always felt, and I felt the players knew that I was always making the decision that it was inevitably in the end the best for them. Well, that's what I believed at that time, and I would try and communicate that to them. And although that didn't make everybody happy, I was I had I was able to sit with that. And sometimes that can make leaders quite lonely, is that sense of you know, I just want to please everybody, I just want to make everybody happy. And actually, this is creating this distance between me and them. And I was I was actually quite comfortable with that because my the reasoning, the intent behind my decisions, I always felt really comfortable with. And, I, and that's something I learned now as, as a coach. When I'm making some hard decisions about players or selection or whatever it might be, if it's not sitting comfortably, if the intent is, is not sitting well with me, that, that I'm not making the right call, I need to go back, talk it through with somebody, get it all out and write it down. Because if the intent is good, that natural space that sometimes exists between leaders and followers, I think is, is, is easy to deal with. It's, it, it's a comfortable gap because, the, because you can sit well with the, with the decision and why you're making it. But I think so often we, we isolate ourselves and it feels like a nasty place to be because we're, we're deep down, we are uncomfortable with what is the, behind uh, some of maybe what we've, we've decided, chosen or communicated. It's really interesting. You know, you, you, you're talking about sort of trust your gut instinct to be able to, to question your own thinking or to even, even believe in your own thinking. When you talked about sharing, perhaps not the burden, but certainly sharing some of maybe the responsibility of leadership with, with a core group of, of players, that's you know, really interesting. And I think that's certainly something that many people do do or, or certainly should do. But where do you go and who did you turn to when you needed to either find solace away from the team or gain advice in terms of how you could be better as a leader or indeed even, uh, you know, meet your own speed bumps that you'd hit, whether it be injury or, or, or perhaps underperforming at certain periods? Who, who did you go to and how did you approach that? I think for the longest time, I didn't necessarily have a go-to person to have some of those conversations with. And I think that was, again, why some of my maybe development um, was a bit slow 
or you know maybe ha- wasn't as quick as it as it possibly could have been because I think through having some of those conversations latterly it helps clarify thinking or you know it helps me help you think in a different way or gain a different perspective uh, about stuff um <clears throat> And I think in in the end, I was talking to lots of different people. I was absolutely talking to my teammates, you know, even though I was leading them and um, there was definitely at times when I was a follower and and they were leading me, there was that feedback, those conversations were gold dust, you know, about my leadership and, you know, how they were experiencing it. That, That is really important, you know, not just kind of a formal, you know, questionnaire about, what kind of leader I am or a 360 review or actually just talking to somebody about how they'd experienced maybe you know the last period or the the conversation this difficult moment that we've just been through um outside of that I think seeing a therapist was was really important for me and I don't think it needs to be a therapist I think it can be anybody external a mentor who is outside of that world who is invested in you as a person but isn't invested in you as a, as a relative or a family member or a loved one or a teammate. There's somebody who's external who can ask you some just really sometimes naive questions, you know, that just make you think in a really different way about things. I think that's that's, that's hugely powerful for anybody. Um, and I think, you know, mentors can be, they can be older than you, they can be younger than you, they can be less experienced, more experienced. I don't think it matters. I think it's just having a connection with somebody and that, and then being able to ask you some really good questions and, and make you think in a different way. Um, but yeah, I, I only kind of really found that later on, on in my career. So it's probably something that I, I'd say everybody can and should should do is just find find those that person, those people who can who can give that to you. I think many, many people would agree, certainly sort of you know, across whether it be sport, the military or elsewhere, having having someone you can talk to who's impartial, but can maybe ask you some perhaps searching questions, but also allow you to order your thoughts and realize that, you know, you're not going, you're not going too far off the reservation yet. But, you know, I think that's really, really, really good advice that so many people will will absolutely register. And I think if there are people who are listening who are you know, at the start of their their journey through being a leader, or 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 maybe not even got there yet. You know, that is something that having someone you can turn to, away from the kind of here and now, uh, who who is who isn't perhaps going to influence or 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 detract from what you're doing, but ask and give you sound advice is is really 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 important. I think. Yeah, it's just the only thing I'd add to that. I suppose is um, now there's like a plethora of. We're surrounded by it, you know, whether it's podcasts like this or, um, you know, TED Talks or there's books, there's online blogs. There's, there's so much stuff out there now. And some of it, you you know, you might pick up and put down immediately. Like, no, I don't agree with that at all. But at least it's made you think. So but the most important part about that is, is building some reflection time into your day, week to be able to digest all of this you know, kind of different material and actually, you know, what do you think about it and how does it relate to you? And, you know, what do you want to pick up and what do you want to put down? I think that's that's also really important, that reflective time. Okay, if we can turn to probably what is the the core question about, you know, where you got to as a player um, representing our country um, in a sport that you loved, leading a group of women who you'd become incredibly close with um you know the olympics in rio were totemic 
and you built on your crushing disappointment of underperforming at Olympic Games, uh, not being able to perform at Olympic Games, mm -hmm. but also that moment where you had to battle not only physical injury and lead from the front uh, in mm -hmm. London, but also missed the opportunity that I know you and the team had really strived to, which was get to final and win in London, but ultimately fight your own battles and, and win what was what became your final. With When you got to Rio, uh, you, you talk about in, in your book and you talked about elsewhere that, you know, it's, it was a collective, you know, coming together of you know, five Olympic cycles, 38 international tournaments, four of which had been the Olympic Games. And you famously say in the book, and I'm definitely going to quote you because I think it's a brilliant quote, is the past is where the gold dust lies. I think that is absolutely exceptional, being able to reach back and look at what you've learned, both from success, but often more importantly, from failure. But in terms of your own development, how different a leader were you on the morning of the 19th of August versus 23-year-old Kate, who captained her first match? Oh, goodness. So, so, so different. And internally you know probably just the same but just in terms of some of the things that I was thinking about conscious of you know where that taking the temperature of the team you know from the moment you were while we're you know kind of woke up and was interacting them interacting with them you know on the way to breakfast you know just kind of you know where are people at just reading body language you know having little conversations just kind of tuning into to players and their mood, tuning into the staff, tuning into the, you know Danny particularly. Where where is he at? What's he feeling like? I wasn't I wasn't doing any of that when I was when I was twenty three. It was you know very much as I said about being being on the pitch. But there was all of the you know work had already been done, and I was comfortable with that at this stage. That there's there was no big things needed from me um, on this day just to be what I'd been every day in the lead up to that point. And that this, that's what the players were expecting of me. And I mean, to the point, you know, I had a migraine, I had a migraine from one of the change rooms. I think I wrote about that. I think I wrote about that in the book. My eye, I had an aura, I get aura before I have a migraine. And so I knew I sat in the change room, my eyes had gone up and I knew I was going to get a migraine, which obviously was going to make playing hockey particularly diff difficult. I don't know, a 23-year-old me maybe would have panicked a bit more, but I just knew I was having a little quiet conversation with Helen, a quiet conversation with Alex, going very calmly, go and speak to the physio and the doctor, get some medication, have a lie down. All of this was going on. No, I don't, and I don't know, but I don't think any of the players, in fact, I know because one of them read the book and said that she had, she had no clue that this was going on, um, that any of this was going on. And that's because we were purposefully knew that at this point, everybody is into their preparation, that they have fine-tuned with the psychologist and uh, with the coaches and with themselves and that, that just allowing people that space to get themselves there. And that all that I was going to need to do is actually at, at, at key points, just before the game, at quarter time, half time, breaks in the game, is to just take the emotion or just kind of try and push some of the emotion away and bring some of the mindful, thoughtful, tactical, um, methodical kind of analysis back into people's mindsets because that is inevitably what was going to enable us to well, either get a draw or a win in that game. And, and it just felt... Whatever the result was, it just felt like we were ready and that I was ready and that I'd 
it's easy to say now with a pink, you know, rose tinted glasses on. But, you know, it just felt very much like, well, the, everything's done. What will now will be, will be. We can just go out there and just put it all out there and, and, and see what happens. It, it, it just felt like we were ready. I think that that's what Matt personifies you as a person, does it? about you know, being able to mask your own concern or maybe even fear that you are going to be perhaps even incapacitated. Uh, and would you make the final? Would you be able to start the game? And then, therefore, what knock-on effects that going to have? That's that. That is leadership. That is you know, that. That personifies everything that we're we all try to do to mask our own concerns in order to make sure that those that we're we're serving and leading are able to to meet their own goals and and potential. And that's 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 wonderful. You 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 very you you touched on it only briefly, but I'm going to absolutely ask you. Um, and I think it is, it is absolutely wonderful. And, it, and I'm genuinely curious to know, um, you know, what's really special about your personal win in Rio is that you did it alongside your wife. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're the first same sex couple to win an Olympic gold and you're only the second couple since Cyril and Dorothy Wright in 1920, yeah. won gold in sailing, um, to oh, win an Olympic, so. to win an Olympic gold together. I mean, <laughs> Um, I, I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of, of exposing concerns or maybe um, alluding to concerns, but you know, how, how genuinely did you disassociate your personal um, pressures of life or the, you know, the concerns you would have had for Helen and indeed she would have had for you? But what, what were, there, were there any challenges that you had leading, leading your wife on the field of play? Yeah, there were definitely challenges. Uh, To be honest, I think, firstly, I think we are harder, sometimes we're often harder on those that are closest to us. So, you know, when my sister was in the team, she would say the same thing. I was, you should say I was much harder for her than than some of my other teammates, I'm sure. And, um, you know, I was, I was definitely at times very demanding of Helen. Um, And, we we had a we had a really strong robust friendship to start with, so that I think uh, enabled us to to navigate some of that some of that challenge, um, and I suppose a lot of the challenge actually, rather than in, in what we were experiencing or how we were interacting with one another, actually came the actual challenge, the greatest challenge came from, from the external gaze, and actually. Um, as I said before, you know, something we put leaders sometimes up on this pedestal and uh, give them you know, extra attention and extra time. And we were building this culture that was about everybody, that was about every single person and not absolutely about not one player. Um, but the media, because it's easy and because it's what we're used to, gets, get fixated on either myself as a captain. And, and actually at times, I think, I know Helen found that extremely frustrating and can understandably so. She was one of the world's best players. One of... I, I'd say probably the best uh, player that this country has produced technically and, and, and her with her knowledge of the game. She's just outstanding. And, can, you know, I said I'm consistently good. I'd say Helen was consistently excellent when she was fit and, and healthy and well. And, you know, at times that would have been really hard to feel like you're kind of a little bit in, in the shadow of, of, of me, which is just not, it wasn't the case. And, we, you know, I think we, we eventually did talk about it. Um, but nevertheless, it was hard. And because we were so adamant about being professional at work, kind of Kate and Helen, just separate hockey players, we were, we were here to do our job for the team. 
you know actually it was it was our relationship that kind of I suppose it was a detriment to we, we just never really gave time to be a couple because we were both absolutely obsessed with the team and being the best we could be for the team and helping the team be what it could be and and so we just didn't we didn't look after our relationship and I think that all kind of came crashing down in, in 2014 when we were both also struggling mentally and, and emotionally for different reasons um, and we had to we had to enact some change and it's you know we're, we're still developing that every single day just that ability to be in touch with ourselves personally be able to share that with one another um and and to talk about it which is, is you know it's hard in a relationship you're busy and there's there's always other things to be talking about and doing and sometimes those meaningful conversations and that being open about how you're feeling and what you need from that other person we just we just don't do it um and and it can be so powerful for the relationship um if we do and, and uh, you know we we learned the hard way we really we needed to do that did you have to sort of sometimes so what are you saying what you had to sort of sometimes almost park the relationship for what was perhaps the, the greater good of your both your individual goals but also the collective of the team or what, what, what when you say you you, you struggled are you is that something that you're talking about or is that something that you yeah we then had to adapt yeah we I mean we didn't have to at all like that we we spoke very openly with the team about our relationship and with Danny the coach about our relationship which was most uncomfortable but really good um for him to express his fears and and you know how we could kind of we could work to alleviate some of that so we as in terms of the team and we definitely feel like we could, we could be ourselves we could talk about our relationship that it wasn't the kind of it wasn't off the table I think it was just because we were just all of our thoughts and all of our conversations were about players, the team, leadership, the coaches, the, you know, the management team, the association, the next tournament, the debrief. It, we, were, we were always talking about uh, all of it. We were just, and, we were, and so we never really talked about our relationship. We didn't give time to Kane, and Helen, the couple, because we were so obsessed with how we can help everyone else be better and help ourselves be better. Um, and actually, I know that everybody performs well when they are well in themselves, when they are happy in themselves and that other things in their world, okay, are not perfect, but they feel like they are connected to them and that they can, you know, that they're enjoying other parts of their, in, of their life. And I think we, we completely, we just didn't attend to that as a, as, as a pair, as a couple, um, or as individuals, frankly, you know, I need, I need also need time to be Kate, to not be Kate the captain, Kate the central defender, Kate the wife. I need to just be Kate, and whatever, the, what does Kate want? What does Kate need? What does Kate think? Um, and I, and I need that time in in my life, and we all need that time as well. And um, so I think it's more that than than needing to uh, separate. It's just what we fell into. Do you think it helped that you were both very well established? You know, you you say. Yeah. Um, you know, your, your humility shines through. You, you were you were consistent, whereas Helen was great. I I think we would all, you know, having watched you play, I think most people would say you were equally as good. But then I'm not a technician. But do you think it would have been harder, or well, it would have been harder? Do you think it, how would you have reacted if one of you had been perhaps one of the marginal decisions as to who was going to be in the squad and who wasn't? And did you ever discuss together? 
especially with your role as the captain of the team, mm. you know, how you might have to make a decision that might impact on Helen's goal, which obviously was to win gold as well. Yeah, I mean, thankfully, as captain, I was never involved in selections. And that was always a very clear line that was drawn. So that I always felt like um, that felt a bit easy for me. I know like I know in cricket particularly, but also I, mean, I think in rugby in some teams, the captain is very instrumental in, in terms of making some selections. So I, I was... I would give my opinion if asked and I would be part of conversations, but I wouldn't be part of the selection process. Um, and so that felt a little bit easier. But there was, you know, when Helen didn't manage to get back fully fit from her second back surgery in 2014 and missed out on selection for the World Cup in 2014, that was really hard. That was hard. Going to a tournament, um, well, firstly, just going to a tournament without Helen, having done every single tournament up to that point, having done that with Helen, not being there with Helen was hard, you know, experiencing that and not being able to share it, not really fully able to be with her when she really needed me there, when she was in a really dark time, was also really hard. And, and it would have been harder. It would have absolutely been harder. I think, as I said, the kind of foundations of our relationship and our friendship, I think would have helped us get through that. And it did help us get through it at the time. And I think some of my closest friends now are players that, were on the periphery of squads that didn't make countless Olympics, having trained for each of them and been selected for things in between them, that some of those players are my closest friends and will remain so for the for, forever because I I care deeply for them and I, and I feel like they know that they care deeply for me and that they, I'm so grateful for, for them and everything that they were and are. And without them, I wouldn't be the person that I am. And I don't, I wouldn't have the, the medals that I do. And, and I think it's, those relationships are hard. I need to be more, I need to be empathetic. And I need to be thoughtful. I need to be mindful and conscious of the language and, and the words that I use and um, what their experience is. And I think that that's all that would have entailed if, 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 it, if the relationship dynamics had been different in that way. The final kind of reference to your book, or maybe not a final one, but a, a, a further reference, which I think is really ties together some of the some of the things you've already talked about about success and failure. Um, we're often too quick to you know, to um, be introspective and and be overly concerned about failure. Mm-hmm. And the military, we are trying very hard to train to the point of failure so that we understand and push our boundaries understand what our collective and individual capability is is able to achieve um you you say in your book you know uh you you have the courage to dare and be vulnerable Mm -hmm. did you ever and i'm sure you would have done but did you ever and then how did you deal and how did you discuss both internally yourself but also as a team what you would have done if you lost in rio I have never, we've never discussed it. And I'm to be honest, I'm not, which is strange, I've never really thought about it. And it's, it's a difficult one to answer because I'd like to say now that because we'd, I felt genuinely felt like we could have done no more, that if we hadn't equalised and it hadn't gone to penalties and we'd lost that game 3-2, which could have quite easily happened, um, I would have been devastated. I would have been devastated. But... I would have an Olympic silver medal and I would be feeling very proud still of the culture that we had kind of pulled up from rock bottom 
<clears throat> just two years before to being a place where everybody felt valued, everybody felt respected, that we were all aligned to something that we had built, that there was legacy here and that there was something to build upon for the future. I, I still I, I still think I would have been devastated, there's no doubt. If you look at any silver medalist on most podium, they're probably the, un, the unhappiest of the of the people standing on the podium because they just lost a game. And they were so close to achieving what they wanted to achieve. Um, but I think with with time, I think I would have felt content, a little bit like I do with the London bronze medal, content with, uh, well, that's where we were at that time. And there's that, there's nothing perhaps that we could have done more um, in the in the lead up, in the build up to to it. And um, I might ask them, I might put it on my WhatsApp group on the, we're still on the WhatsApp group. I'll put it on the WhatsApp group later on and see what responses I get back from the, from the team to see what they're, <laughs> If they've ever thought about it and and how they would feel about it now, um, but that's how I'd like to think I'd I'd feel about it. It's quite interesting. You you've previously spoken about you, you when you went back to two thousand four or even perhaps forgive me it might have been two thousand eight where you were trying to determine what it was you as a group wanted to achieve, and some people were fearful of as it transpired of saying they wanted to win. Others yeah. were just, I want to get to the Olympics. Some people are, I just want to get on the podium. Mm-hmm. Um, but by staking, you know, by pinning your colours to the wall, saying we are going to win, and you know, that is that is our aim. It would be really interesting to see, perhaps, how if you hadn't have won, how that would have, whether you could walk away and say, well, we we absolutely gave everything we possibly could, and therefore we accept the result. It takes some people a long time. I. I I wonder whether yeah. that's that's something you internally, or maybe you just didn't want to to look at that in too hard a harder light, harsher light. I think there's a I think that's the, the the power of having a vision that is that is about a broader win, and that winning looks like a lot of things. Of course, we wanted to win that gold medal. Like I think, and I think that almost goes without saying that we're stepping out onto that field together to try and win every game that we're playing, whether it's Marlow men's fifth team or the Dutch in the Olympic final, we're, we're out there representing the sh- whatever shirt we're wearing and we're trying to win. I think because we built our vision for Rio around being the difference, creating history and inspiring the future, we, we still would have been able to do that. Whether we, we still would have been able to do that without a medal. We still would have been able to do that with a silver medal, bronze medal. It absolutely gave us a greater platform to be able to do that with a gold medal. I'm not sure we would be having this conversation if I if I had silver medal, for example. <laughs> Maybe. But they are greater wins. The number of young people having picked up a hockey stick uh, after that gold medal. More people going to watch hockey, play hockey because they they they'd seen that. You know, the ability to speak about equality and LGBTQ plus um, inclusiveness. Mm. You know, they're all bigger wins um, mm. that 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 go far beyond. Olympic gold medal which is lovely but it's it's sitting in my drawer in a sock and it means something and it's very sentimental it will always mean something to me but actually what it means more to me is that bigger purpose that still gets me out of bed in morning today and and I think that's why when we kind of really narrow down winning to one very specific thing we lose um and failure is is really hard to to come back from that actually if we we can still be thinking about that we can still be aiming for that i think we shouldn't avoid that but i think it's also thinking about what else 
what does winning look like? Does you know developing me as a as a woman, developing me as a leader, developing other people as leaders, seeing them now shine in leadership positions. Um, all of those things matter just as much to me as that Olympic gold medal, and probably long term will mean more. And so I think that's that's important when we define winning, define it on your terms and as broadly and as widely as you want it to. I think that that, that absolutely transcends certainly the sport into the military and, and I'm sure elsewhere about, you know, that bit about not every failure is a failure and actually you get a lot of, you know, you get a lot of positives and you do get a win from something that you might initially in the, and when it's very raw seem like an abject failure, actually it, it becomes a, a pivotal building block in terms of how you develop as individuals, but also how you how you develop as as a team. Mm-hmm. Um, Kate, I'm very conscious you've been incredibly gracious with your, with your time, and we're, we're probably running out of it a little bit. But can I? I there are so many other questions we we'd like to talk. I'm sure people would like to hear about the Olympics, from you know your very first memory all the way through what life is like in the Olympic Village to all the good stuff that so mm-hmm. many of us don't get a chance to experience. Mm-hmm. And and indeed, you know what a what a huge privilege it was for you. Uh, to have carried the flag at the closing ceremony to be voted on by all British athletes must have been something very special. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Olympics is just um, it's it's special. You know, it's it brings the country together. I think particularly, you know, London, the home Olympics. Just it just felt like you know the nation just all joined together and and were invested in people that they'd never heard of before, sports they'd never watched before. But they were all, we were all in it together. And for the Olympics and the Paralympics, you know, for those four weeks. And I think we've managed to keep that buzz um, in, in Rio. And I think in, in Tokyo, this time it's even harder because of um, kind of code restrictions and everything around that. But I still felt that connection to athletes. And um, that's a really special thing. And to be within that, to be an athlete within that, if I look back to Sydney and just, you know, being a wide-eyed uh, youngster and being in the Olympic Village with just the world's best athletes um, across all the different sports, and I was the same uh, in in Sydney when I was just about twenty to being in you know Rio. I was thirty six, and you know I still kind of ran down the road to have a pitch taken. You shouldn't really do this, but with Serena and Venus Williams because <laughs> they are legends and um, they transcend sport. And you know I swapped my. We, athletes do weird stuff we swap pins uh so I swap my pin with Venus and you know just seeing um all different shapes and sizes all people from around the world different nationalities different ethnicities different uh religious beliefs and sexualities and different in every way but they're all here because they are the very best at what they do in their country and they're here to represent their country and they're so proud to do and to deliver that on the world stage and I think it's um it is just a, a very special environment. And I feel very lucky to have experienced it as many times as I, as I have. Um, and I felt, I felt really sad. Uh, I felt really proud to be able to be a part of it as a commentator, but I felt really, I felt at loss this time watching Tokyo and not being there for the first time in, you know, five Olympic cycles and not being involved at all. Um, was absolutely felt sad. And there was some, you know, I had to kind of sit with the grief a little bit and kind of work through it because, um, well, it's inevitable and it's understandable. Um, and actually, just just to see it now from a, from a, from a fan from a total fan point of view and actually just love the Olympics like everybody else does. 
um, and the Paralympics the same. So, but, yeah, but it's something um, that's been such a part of your life. It's yeah. it's totally understandable that you know you've had the 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 huge talent and great opportunity to go to these events which so many of us as you are now doing sit and watch and have had friends or people we know or, or just people we idolize going to these games and it's it's lovely to hear that that uh, you know even even our great superstar sports people run down the road to try and get pictures with their with their with their heroes as well it's lovely to hear that you, you know, as as now a, a an observer but also um post you know post playing career as a uh, as a coach uh, with Hampstead and, and Westminster, but also uh, your role with the uh, Women's Sport Trust. How have you taken your that, that huge experience that you gained from when you were 15, 16 years old, being a captain, mm-hmm. all the way through that, that you know, amazing journey to, to gold in Rio and now beyond? How have you adapted to be you know, a coach, but also perhaps a mentor and advisor to, to others who are you can see where they go or what they, where they could go and the talent that they've got. Yeah, I mean, being a coach is, I, I just love it. I love, I love it because it connects me to the game that I love. I love it because it helps me, well, develop myself, but it also help, helps me be part of other people's development and um, helping other people achieve their goals and achieve their dreams. I think that's, a, that's something that I just, I just love doing and I, and I don't take it for granted and, it's you know they are a brilliant uh, group of uh, women that I'm working with, and they are they you know they challenge me in really good positive ways, and I and I love and I love that challenge. I, I suppose everything that I've done since um, since my playing career is, is 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 absolutely aligned to that that final kind of vision for Rio to be the different great history inspire the future, and tapping into kind of I suppose my personal values of, of fairness and equity and. And wanting to help people be the best version of themselves and, and really caring about people. Um, and, and I suppose that's kind of fed into everything that I've done since. I want to, to give people a voice, to give people opportunity, to enable people to um, have access to and opportunity to be what they can be and see beyond the barriers that are put in front of them and to, and to break them down and to, um, and to create their own history. And I think that's, that's definitely something that I want to continue to do. And, and that can, you know, it's sport and business in all aspects of, of, of life, really. So, Kate, thank you so much for, for all of that. I've got a few quick fire questions, which I'd like to ask you, if I may. First and foremost, who is the best leader you've ever worked with and why? Oh, my goodness me. Well, that's really hard. It's really hard. I find it really hard. This is not quick fire uh, to answer that question because I think every leader has has uh good bits and they have bits that you you'd have really struggled with but I think if I had to answer it one person I would say Danny Kerry I think just in terms of his knowledge of the game his tactical technical uh knowledge and his visionary uh ability about seeing where a team can go who is the most inspirational leader from history and why I think I'm going to I'm going to say Martin Luther King I think being able to use your voice to improve the lives of others in from a position of uh, a minority or certainly a position of not holding power I think is a is a very brave courageous uh, position to take and I think must be fueled by a real innate sense of self and a vision 
for a better, brighter future. And I think, I think if we could all be a bit more of that, I think we'd have a better world. Yeah, I think many, many of us, if not all of us, would agree on that one. What's the most valuable leadership lesson you learned? To lead from within, to to be authentic to who you are. It doesn't mean you can't develop and grow, um, but that there you have leadership qualities within you and you just need to carve them out um, and to, to see them clearly and to use them, but they're within you. Lost, definitely not least, eh? and you, we've touched on it a little bit, but we, we, might have to be, we might have to be very specific. With hindsight, which is always a wonderful thing, uh, what would you tell a 23-year-old Kate Richardson-Walsh on day one as the captain of the women's hockey team? Embrace conflict. Leave it at that. And there we are. <laughs> <laughs> there we are. Kate, thank you so much for giving up an awful lot more of your time than than I know you can spare. It's incredibly kind of you. It's been a fascinating insight into someone who is absolutely and rightly upheld as a champion in, in every walk of life and across a myriad of different things from sport to, uh, to coaching, to your personal life, to the LGBTQ community as well, and to women in the round. Thank you so much for all your time and for everything you do and have done. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, I would speak to you. That was a fascinating and at times emotive conversation with Kate that saw three themes come out humility, empathy, and trust. Humility is one of the core attributes of any leader and something that's highlighted by the Chief of the General Staff in his introduction to the new and updated Army Leadership Doctrine and is the need to understand one's own capabilities and the importance of helping and learning from others as a, as a leader so as to improve. The ability to balance being a follower and a leader and seeking to improve herself and her team around her taught Kate so much more throughout her career as it developed. Chapter four of the Leadership Doctrine which deals with developing leaders, underpins this point when it states that leaders must have the self-awareness, humility and desire to improve as a person, which in turn makes them a better leader. Secondly, we learnt about empathy. It was obvious that Kate's emotional intelligence was one of the main things that bound her to her teammates and shone through in everything we talked about. Caring for your people, uh, they in turn will care for you. It underpins the point that all great leaders develop relationships away from the pitch and understand that the external pressures on those they lead and ultimately helps to get the best out of their people in times of heightened pressure or stress, whether that is on operations or in the dying moments of an Olympic final. Finally, at the heart of leadership is trust, whereas our doctrine suggests trust and mutual understanding between leaders and followers must be implicit. In her early days as captain of the British team, Kate admitted to being too isolated and blinkered in her approach to being a leader but th this was the way that she herself was led. Over time, as her experience of being captain developed, she recognised the importance of showing vulnerability and how it fostered comradeship, mutual respect and trust. She learned that it is critical to embrace your own fears and concerns, and if you can, to find someone outside of the team or organisation who is invested in you as a person to support or indeed challenge you. Having feedback from your team and a mentor will allow you to develop as a leader and have a better understanding of what to work on to help you improve. For Kate, winning gold was an exceptional accomplishment, but the overall goal of be the difference, create history, inspire the future, allowed her to achieve her biggest legacy. 
While winning was an obvious goal, the end state was much bigger. In her eyes, being able to inspire a generation of young women and build the game at grassroots is more of a legacy than winning gold itself. The power of having an inclusive vision that looks beyond results was clearly essential. You can win in many different ways, and in turn we learned that not every failure is a failure. It's what you learn and how it develops you that is more important. As Kate learned from setback at the very beginning of her career, what are you going to do about it if you fail? Above all, long-term investment and continual search to improve will see you achieve your goals over time. And as she says, the past is where the gold dust lies. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, do please subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment. For more information on British Army leadership and to get in touch with anyone on the team, please visit our website. And of course, follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.